go ahead and state who you are, what you do, and how you're connected to the John Tucker case. My name is Dorothy Stevens, but friends call me Dora. I run the Oakland House Paranormal Department, which works with many universities in the South to aid in paranormal and parapsychology research. I was a friend of Marjorie Bradford and helped both she and Lawrence find the man we knew as John Smith, now known to be John Tucker. So, Jory Bradford- Wait, I'm going to stop you while you're ahead. I haven't spoken to Jory in months, and although I'm sure she wouldn't consider me a friend for obvious reasons, I have no intention of slandering her either. Oh, I would never ask for that. Although, we are partially here to talk about her. No, we're here to talk about John's case. No offense, but Jory has shit little to do with John, and I think it's silly how people have made John's family drama and abuse Jory's fault. I can almost guarantee the outcome would have been far worse for John if Jory hadn't found him. What she did was right. On the other hand, I'm happy to talk about John. When Jory and Lawrence first brought John to me, he was a mess. I couldn't believe it was the same sane, smart guy Jory had told me about from the library. His eyes were swimmy. Jory literally tossed me a handgun as they stumbled in from the rain, half-soaked, before she announced he had tried to shoot them. Not the first impression you want from a guy your friend is... obsessed with? Maybe not a great word choice, but you get the idea. She was still determined to help this person, even after he tried to kill her. Nope, I was definitely not a fan. I definitely didn't want him living in my attic, that's for sure. I started to feel bad about some things after that. I had thought finding John was the best thing for Jory. Then I wasn't sure. It was the only real moment of doubt I can remember. I'm sure you know what I'm going to ask next. I do. Ask and we'll see if I feel like answering. You poisoning the drinks. Real? Or just a stunt for the podcast? Real. Oh, really? Interesting. He never mentioned it. Huh? Never mind. Unimportant. So, should I even bother asking about Jory? This is all I will say. I believe that often when we're suppressed and gifts go unused, they lash out in our psyche and become burdens, which makes sense, right? Even a gentle animal will lash out when neglected for too long. Some people are born and only taught how to suppress. Jory had been demonizing her own brain to such an extreme point for so long, it was self-sabotaging. I wanted to make space for it to do what it was good at again. See the paths and patterns others couldn't. Interesting. And when you say gift, are you talking something spiritual? Or maybe not literal, but symbolic? That's a hard question to answer, and not for me to talk about, and I honestly don't know if I could. There's so much even I don't know, but I do believe we're all given skills meant to use. Some are just less traditional. And that's what makes being her friend so hard sometimes. Watching her keep herself in the dark. So I guess I just snapped. She had everything she needed to find John, every resource and ability. And when I helped create that mental space, she and Lawrence made headway on the case, partially because of her dreams. Maybe that's a coincidence, sure, or maybe I was right. And do you regret it? No. No, I don't regret it. But I do miss her.
fight it then. Time's up. We have company. I was furious and saw no end to it. Since slamming through the Oakland front door 15 minutes ago, I had resigned myself to an all-consuming anger and annoyance. Why in my right mind had I believed Lawrence and I could actually work together? For two fleeting seconds, I had stupidly believed we could set our differences aside like we had before. Even after all these years, I still caught myself being naive. It had been a disaster from the moment I'd gotten into the car and we'd started arguing over which roads to take, and had come to a head as I broke the news of who we'd be speaking to. My friend Charlie had worked for the UGA parapsychology department for years and had recently taken on research for an old pre-Civil War property being restored into a living history museum. It was thanks to that passion project that Atlanta had been graced with Charlie's presence once again, after being stuck in Athens for over three years. But that wasn't the catch. Charlie had recently started focusing on other areas of historic, social, and psychological research. I had known Lawrence wouldn't be thrilled. Charlie greeted us on the collapsing porch with a big smile and wave as Lawrence's eyes took in the old structure with judgment. His two shiny boots stuck in the muddy yard and I knew his opinion had already been solidified. He must have sensed I was taking this investigation in a different direction. I knew it wouldn't be fun. Charlie was nothing but gracious as they led us into the small space filled with construction equipment and dust. The overcast light fought to leak through the weathered window panes and I strained my eyes to make out the cluttered entrance. The front door spat us into the narrow hallway connected to a set of stairs and two even narrower doors. The mud on Lawrence's shoes created boot prints as we were led down the hall and into the main living area. I shot him a glare that could melt ice. He returned it with a smile and stomped through the halls even louder, leaving even deeper tracks as the mud was rocked from his feet. Charlie moved through the room, which was not currently under construction, and to a clean dining table with chairs pulled around it. A glass case filled with everyday antique items was the only other prominent piece of furniture in the room. A quick peek revealed a single lonely shoe, a notebook, and some morning jewelry, along with small miscellaneous iron tools I couldn't quite place. That's when things really turned. Lawrence kept quiet while Charlie excitedly explained the history of the building we were in, a traditional middle-class wood frame family home from the 19th century. And he remained quiet as I started asking questions about the cuts and symbols I'd seen with my own eyes and brought out images from the crime scene I'd been at, including a picture I'd taken myself. Charlie wasn't phased at all. They launched into a list of possible explanations covering causes ranging from everyday practical possibilities to the more macabre reasons. Lawrence hadn't said anything the entire time, just crossed his arms over his chest and not so patiently waited for Charlie to be done speaking. Then he said goodbye and we left. Needless to say, the car ride had been unpleasant. Foul words had been spat between us like projectiles. Lawrence hadn't held back, triggered into stubborn anger, and I hadn't held back either. I took deep, steadying breaths as I walked around Oakland House and tried not to regret everything I had said and everything I hadn't said during the car ride. With every lamp I switched on, I cringed at a memory. That could have gone better. The motion light outside turned on and an opossum ran across the glass back door. The grandfather clock's ticks were loud, reminding me of the late time and the bed waiting for me just a short walk from here. But I was too riled to go home just yet. 
poring over paperwork and responding to emails in my office was my only line to composure. I considered, for a moment, breaking into my gin stash and quickly threw the idea away. Every time I drank, bad things happened. Tempting fate had never been a good idea for me. Playing with fire is your hobby, my aunt had once accused me. She hadn't been wrong. She was actually more right than she'd ever know. The front door opened, letting a chill breeze blow into my back office. I froze in my chair as I heard the door click back into place, oh so softly, and every hair on my body stood to attention. My anxiety twisted in my stomach like a snake, then was drawn tight like a tripwire. It's just Lawrence feeling bad for once. It's just Lawrence, Dora. I composed myself, but I still reached for the switchblade in my dress pocket. If, by some chance, it wasn't Lawrence suddenly familiar with the concept of I'm sorry, I wouldn't be caught unaware. And besides, I told myself, stabbing Lawrence wouldn't be the worst thing today. It sounded almost cathartic in the moment. One, two, three. I counted the ticks from the hall clock as I tiptoed around the corner in my heels. And there was the culprit, standing straight-backed by the back door, watching a family of opossums cross the back porch through the glass. I flicked on the foyer chandelier. What the actual fuck, Jory? What? The door was unlocked. You're getting sloppy, Dora. Fury piled on top of Fury, and I almost felt sorry for her. Because if she hadn't been looking for confrontation, she'd come to the wrong place. You don't look so good. That's because you scared the shit out of me. I flicked open my switchblade and shook it at Jory for emphasis. I thought you were Lawrence. I almost stabbed you. What? So if I was Lawrence, you would have stabbed me? I mean, I know you're angry at him, but damn. I looked at Jory with suspicion, not moving my knife. What makes you think I'm mad at him? You're always mad at him. That was bullshit. We both knew it. Lawrence and I had been getting along fine the last time Jory had seen us together. It had been a tentative truce and one I'd willingly given up today. Jory turned from the window and began to wander through the large hallway like she was reacquainting herself. She had looked like hell when I went through the courtroom recordings and now she looked a little less like hell. The bags under her eyes were even more aggressive, but there was a stillness to her that had reassured me. Maybe she had learned to live with her hell. I'm supposed to be helping Lawrence but I don't think that's gonna happen anymore. Jory took off her round spectacles to dry off the lenses with her cornflower blue cardigan and continued to be very interested in each old painting and vase barely illuminated by the lamp in the office. Every empty, silent moment laid heavy between us. Why? What happened? A guy died, and I think I have an idea as to why he died, and Lawrence won't listen to me. He's sending me on a wild chase to crack some occult code instead of focusing on the actual lead I have. Would it help if you did what he wanted? Honestly, no, probably not. People look at the occult all wrong. Do you know how many practices incorporate various scripts and even adapt them from other practices? A ton, a lot, all of them. Runes and symbols are one of those easy, non-violent practices that gets passed around. But Jory, how many occult traditions can you think of that use blood consistently?
Wait, don't a lot? No, that's the point. The public is under an impression that blood is some casual ingredient thrown into witch's soup every night, but it's just not. That's not the reality. The people that do use it do so very sparingly and only for personal, powerful occult rituals. And when it does get used, it's almost always their own blood. Not someone else's, and definitely not from a murdered victim. Now I have one more question for you. How many occult practices can you think of that don't just use blood, but use someone else's blood? Dora had settled herself on top of the front desk while talking, and now sat perfectly still. Her face had gone stoic, save for her left raised eyebrow. There are a few, I will give you that. But there aren't that many that would make sense in this part of the country, particularly in Atlanta. Dora reached behind her and a loud smack sounded throughout the quiet building as a thick pile of papers and files held together by heavy clips dropped onto the desk next to her. The curiosity was poised to kill me as I decided to break my act of casual disinterest and walk to read the title of the file. I would have laughed out loud if not for the cold feeling that ran through me. What? Stop looking at me like that. I can't. This is genuinely how I feel. Well, stop it. My eyes still adjusting to the mostly dark, I reread the title printed in simple and bold font, the kind used for legal documents and academic research. A comprehensive account of vampires, energy vampires, and vampire covens in Georgia, 2001 to 2018. Charlie Ramirez, University of Georgia. I leveled Dora with a look. She only crossed her arms and hopped from the desk, heading for the office without another word. I had been dismissed. No explanation or elaboration, just the bizarre, fantastical title staring back at me. How could she dismiss me when she was the one to trick me? It was her fault we were no longer on good terms. Wasn't it? I should be the one walking away. I should be the one working with Lawrence and living in Harker and being happy. Shouldn't I? Was she happy? I hurried into the office after her. Dora plopped into the office chair and spun slowly, absentmindedly. Expression now changed from cold to contemplative and distant. The change of energy was jarring, and my fingertips tingled. Her eyes were unfocused, as if not seeing the room around her, and I had no way of knowing if she saw the same surroundings I did. And for probably the first time, I looked at Dora how I would look at a stranger. Who was this? It was my childhood friend, yes, but she was also a complete stranger. Somewhere along the way, time had changed her as much as myself, and I had been too narrow-sighted to see. Or care. You shouldn't be here this late. You know that. Why? You always say that, but I can never remember you actually explaining why. I always thought it was maybe for theft reasons. Maybe the historic society didn't like strangers around their old stuff, but now... I never told you because I know you wouldn't believe me. You won't listen. It's not who you are. Sure, you entertain my ideas, my beliefs, but when it comes down to it, you're just humoring me. Because if I handed you a bag filled with paper ashes and told you it meant the difference between a peaceful sleep or a slimy feeling down your spine every night at 3 a.m., would you even listen? Or told you to clap at the threshold three times and walk in backwards, or else your nightmares will have even more dark figures lurking in the corners. Would you believe me? No. Then don't come here at night. Live in that ignorant bliss you enjoy. I've seen stuff that would scare the shit out of you, and I'm still here because I followed instructions. She stopped, facing me in the doorway, and focused on me once again. 
A ghost of a breeze stood the hair on my arms to attention. You're smart, and you're brave, stupidly so sometimes. But you're too proud, Jory. And so am I. I am sorry. I don't know if I believe you. (laughs) Thanks for the honesty, but I believe you. I've always believed you. A pang went through my own chest at the words. At how, even with Dora sitting across from me saying how dangerous this place allegedly was, I hadn't felt this comforted in months. The eeriness almost added to that comfort. Yeah, you have, haven't you? Hey, what if I told you I was moving back? And not just moving back, but not running? And maybe I'll even stop lying? Dora's eyes sharpened as the meaning hit, and she grinned. I would say, how can I help? Maybe I had just needed Dora to lecture me from the beginning. She'd always been so good at that, yanking me, kicking and screaming into a new perspective. One act of kindness didn't absolve her of her crime, but she did have a backlog of friendship to pull from. Now, maybe those words Dora had spat at me half-drunkenly the night we found John were actually true. We were even. Something told me I would need Dora in my corner before this was all over, and it was far from over. I packed up my items at Henry's the next day. He was, predictably, thrilled to finally have the apartment to himself again. He ran through the measly 800-square-foot space, smacking the door frames as he skipped from room to room, singing Moving Out. I threatened to stay longer if he didn't shut the hell up before hearing Henry crash against my freshly locked door. It was obvious I would be missed. And when I really thought about it, had anything changed? Morgan was still caring for corpses. Henry was still testing my patience at every turn. Dora was still Dora. And Franklin was still a pain in my ass. So why now? Why had I chosen to put my foot down now? There was no guarantee the outcome would improve. Most likely, it would become much worse. Maybe I wouldn't just be sneered at and gossiped about. Maybe there would be more than vaguely threatening notes taped to my door this time. The notes. I hadn't told anyone that part yet. The real reason I had ultimately decided to leave Harker after the trial. Of course, I had blamed the incessant reporters overwhelming the tiny city for my quick departure. The Tucker trial had been a month away the day I came home to find the crisp white piece of paper stuck to my block front door. The porch didn't appear to be touched at all, no footprints or flower pots disturbed. But there, held by a rusty nail driven into the chipped wood at eye level, was the note. Five stark lines had been tallied at the center, aggressively indenting the paper. Just below that was a sentence written much lighter. Are you ready? I instantly knew something wasn't right. A chill raked down my spine and I suddenly became very aware of how vulnerable and alone I was standing on my own front porch. Who had put this here? Was it intended for me? Had the person responsible stuck around to make sure I saw it? And that was the beginning of the end. Whatever pitiful sense of safety I had managed to retain while finding John had been shot with one measly attempt to scare me. Or I had thought it was just to scare me until later that night. I fell asleep on my couch after pacing the house for an hour, checking door and window locks every time I passed them. 
The old tunnel entrance John had used had been securely sealed for weeks, but the thought of anyone crawling up from that dark hole in my home freaked me out too much to sleep in my room. Like hell, I would let that entrance out of my sight. If I was gonna die, I wouldn't be caught unaware in my own bed with a knife in my back. That was the first night I dreamed of her. She was a blur of white darting from one corner of my living room to the other. My vision refused to focus on her figure even as the rest of my living room slowly came into focus. Or maybe it wasn't my vision, but the entity itself. She flickered like an old TV signal with a bad antenna. The edges of her rippled like snow, enhanced by what I could now tell was a white dress, translucent white skin, and the palest blonde hair. As she began to slow down, I noticed the sickly blue and green trailing down her arms and legs. Were those veins? Something didn't feel right. The living room had never been the stage for one of my nightmares, so why was it now? This was a nightmare, right? It felt like one. But then again, my worst nightmares had always been memories first, and I didn't remember this. She stopped moving long enough to stand in front of me as I laid there, unmoving, head glued to the quilted pillow it had fallen asleep on. I felt heavy, very heavy. My body felt like it was at the bottom of the ocean, held down by unfathomable pressure. Only God himself can move me now. But he had no reason to, and she knew it. Even with the details of her still blurred, I felt the pity and anticipation running through her. I looked everywhere but her face. Fear pumped through my chest at the first crack of the fireplace behind her. An orange glow collected behind her silhouette, shining through her translucent skin. I rarely made a fire in my home. No, no, none of this was right. This'll be fun. I heard the voice say into my head. My right ear tickled from whispered breath. I squeezed my eyes shut, willing myself to wake up. The ticking in my head was so, so loud. Then everything was gone. I came to several hours later. The clock on the mantel said 6 a.m. Warm ash collected in the fireplace. I opened my door later that same afternoon to yet another note. The five lines of tally had been replaced with four, and scribbled beneath it were the words, Molly likes you. The next day, I told John the press had become too much for me. He helped me pack my essentials and move them to Henry's place. But I never told him why. I never told anyone why. The day after they took my father into custody, I saw my mother cry. I'd only seen her shed tears a handful of times. Once, when I caught her crying at the kitchen table at 5 a.m., leaning over a cup of tea that had long gone cold. It was a quiet cry because my mother was always a quiet woman. I was only five, and the realization of my mother's humanity scared me so badly, I snuck back to bed before she could know, leaving her to comfort herself since I didn't know how. Now, as an adult, I know she must have cried often, but that time, it just wasn't hidden well enough. The second time was when she discovered I was leaving. She caught David and I as I jumped from my bedroom window to the dirty red ground, throwing my threadbare duffel bag out before me. She didn't ask what we were doing, didn't ask who David was. She looked at the bag on the ground, at my layered jackets, and tears started falling silently. David pulled me up roughly by the arm, and I 
I didn't think, just started begging, begging her to keep her silence and let us leave. I told her how much I loved her, but that I had to go, or I was worried I would die here. David's urgency escalated, and he kept trying to get us moving. Run was the word he used. We had to get moving. Begging was the least optimal choice for our safety. My mom didn't say anything before backing into the house quickly, feeling behind herself for the door handle, already calling for my dad. The third and last time I saw my mom cry was the day after my father had been arrested. I'd gone to the family property in anticipation of what would be a messy situation. Nobody would expect it to be easy, and it wasn't. She didn't want me there. Didn't want me in the house that wasn't guaranteed to be hers for long. And she said through jagged, tear-torn breaths, she didn't want any of it. It was mine, the house, the property, everything that hadn't been taken by the state. It was mine. And she didn't trust me. I didn't blame her. I'd weighed in and measured the risks. My hand may have been forced a, a little when Jory found me, but I decided a while ago who my allies really were. And I didn't blame her. She'd lost one son not long ago, and I'd taken the only other person sharing her isolated life. Dust kicked up from the dirt drive behind the sleek vintage BMW borrowed from Dora. Dora was surprisingly protective of her vehicles for someone I knew stored her hooch in a flower pot under her floorboards, and I sent up a prayer this didn't break any of her vehicle conduct rules. The March weather had swung from a rainy chill to a dry, unquenchable heat. This wasn't uncommon for North Georgia, but it meant the sweater I'd chosen at 8 a.m. this morning was wildly inappropriate. Jory had her feet resting on the dashboard and let out a squeal of fear and enjoyment every time we hit a pothole. I'd asked her to visit the family property with me two weeks ago, mere hours after landing home, and I was glad she agreed. I made the final left turn onto the road that led to the family home. Jory sat straighter as the first little building came into view. It was one of the sheds taken over by age and wasn't more than a crumbling wood box now. I slowed to give Jory an easier look. Poison Ivy had taken over and wound its way through the door hinges and cracks. And we continued. Jory's smile dropped further as more little buildings came into view, each one slightly different, as if they were a series of prototypes. And the investigators had found bodies in nearly every single one. They spread across the fields like little grave markers. That was all this land had ever been good for the dead. I'd barely parked under the rusted overhang when Jory jumped from the car, a nervous, cautious energy vibrating off her. Well, it's not much, but it's something. Yeah, something. It's kind of charming, in an Edward Gein kind of way. Well, thankfully my dad wasn't turning people into lamps. That we know of. Ugh. Too soon? I knew how the dirty, formerly white farmhouse looked to her. The gutters had collapsed and red mud stains streaked the exterior. Most of the shutters had fallen off by the time I was in high school. Everything in the garden my mother had maintained by the front porch was either overgrown or dead by now. It wasn't the scene of a picturesque childhood. It's mine now. She gave it to me. She... 
Oh. Jory was definitely no longer smiling. She lifted her Nikon and snapped a few pictures. That was my official reason for asking Jory along, with my unofficial reason being emotional support. Yeah, she wasn't doing me a favor. I think she knew it wouldn't be a welcome gift. I guess she didn't want it? No, not anymore. She's living with my great aunt. Huh. What will you do with it? Take whatever I want to keep, knock this house down, and control burn the property. I have everything ready for when the county gives me the okay. Maybe I'll be able to sell it or something. I've got a few ideas. You've been thinking about this for a while, huh? I had. From the day after my father's arrest up until the day I'd come home, I'd been weighing my options. I loved this place. I had grown up here. Every inch of the soil held the memories of my recent ancestors. I also hated this place because those memories were haunting. Truth was, I didn't want to be within 200 miles of this property as it was. The moment I decided what to do with it, my head had cleared, and I had known it was time to come home. I pushed through the front door, ignoring both the broken lock and the palm-sized eye symbol carved deep into the wood above the handle. Jory snuck in behind me, touching the carving cautiously in passing, not asking questions, but observing. The air was stale, and a ceiling was spotted with water stains the size of plates. Vermin scuffled for cover as my phone flashlight hit the dark room to my left. The sink was still piled with dishes, now growing science experiments. It was dirty and falling apart, nothing close to livable, but in better condition than I'd expected after months of neglect and years of abuse. We went through the rest of the interior, double-checking I'd gotten everything out. Jory quietly followed and I gave quick descriptions for the various spaces in the home as she snapped more pictures. The breakfast nook where my brother and I had sat every morning after pouring our own cereal. The bedroom we'd shared that still had our childhood bunk beds. She cut in with the occasional question, but we avoided any mentions of my dad. She never asked about the fist-sized holes in the drywall or the bedroom doors covered in notches from when my dad would have target practice with his knives when we were grounded on the other side to keep us in line and remind us that his cruelty lived here as much as we did. See anything you forgot? Nothing. We left and nothing went with me. What I hadn't told Jory was that even though this wasn't my first trip back to the property, I had never taken anything. No, it would all stay here and be crushed or burned. The family curse ended with me, so to say, and this would be one hell of an effigy. It was the only way this would feel right. You know, there is one thing I could do with the land instead of selling. Yeah? What are you thinking? Build a new place on it? Start a commune or a weed farm or something? No, 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 no. I got it. Paintball arena. Jory hopped on the hood of the car and I internally cringed. The warm light of the pre-sunset cast shadows from the little buildings and I was once again reminded of a graveyard. The wind had picked up and was whipping Jory's hair about as she struggled to untangle her hair from her wired glasses and eyelashes. 
paintball arena sounds fun, but I was thinking something more honoring to everyone here. I gestured to the land vaguely, hoping she caught my meaning. There's so much death here already. I was thinking I could turn it into a natural cemetery, somewhere people can put their loved ones that's actually peaceful. No fire or embalming, just nature. Jory stared at a point in the distance quietly. It was a main crematorium, silent and dim, unassuming. It watched over the fields from a little hill at the back of the property. I hadn't gone in it yet, wouldn't go in it. It had already been condemned and would be demolished and burned with everything else. Yeah, that might make some things right. starts the same way. I open my eyes and I'm back in that small, trashy walk-up apartment. It's the rainy season. I can hear cars driving through puddles outside my bedroom window to my left. My chest is heavy and I'm paralyzed. The suffocating smell, steady breathing, and always the humming. I'm trapped through it all. Then the prick, this time at my shoulder. It's sharper than usual, and I feel my body jump. Something was different. By the time I fell through the floor and came to, it was 4 a.m., and my phone had nearly vibrated itself off the table. A blinding screens that I had six missed calls and one voicemail. How had I not woken up? Hey, McComfrey. There's been another one. You're needed at Street. I'm headed there now. They said to go straight there and not to check in at the station. Apparently it's, uh, unappetizing. Just a heads up. I'll take care of things until you get here. And then there were four. Couldn't say I hadn't expected it. I grabbed the shirt I discarded in the Georgia heat on my way to the bathroom. My shoulder was sore. I looked in the vanity mirror to assess the damage. A cut no more than half an inch long slashed my right shoulder, and the color drained from my face. This was too familiar. Son of a bitch. There wasn't time to soak in the fresh reality. The only choice was to take a shower and steal myself for the bloodbath, and to finally get the phone call I'd been dreading for years. Creepy Podcast is a bi-weekly podcast written and produced by me, Theodora. Special thanks to our voice actors, Katie Collier, Nathaniel Curtis, Joseph Teagle, Emily Black, and Nero Mercado. Main theme by Theodora and Seth Johnson. Music by Zach Tupper. Audio production and additional scoring by Seth Johnson. 
last but not least, visit our website, thatcreepypodcast.com, for links to some awesome merch, playlists inspired by the show, and more. We'll see you next time.